You should have your Bibles open to 1 Timothy 2, which we'll look at today, trying our best to stay focused on the author's main point, despite the fact that this chapter is the subject of much theological disagreement, especially among Christians today. Uh, If we're paying attention to anything last week, then uh, hopefully the gospel must stay central. That's kind of the idea that we were talking about, that the gospel needs to be central. We want to stay away from any kind of vain discussion, any uh, of the peripheral or spurious theology uh, debates and quarrels and and all that kind of stuff. Um, We want to be careful not to let anything that's not the main thing divide us or occlude our, our focus on the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Before we really get into this chapter, though, I, uh, if, if we can, tech team, if we could just display um, verse one, or you know, the, just that that paragraph, um, I want you to see that it starts off in in First Timothy chapter two, verse one. It starts off with these words: First of all, then. First of all, then. Okay, we can take the display off now. Thank you. Um, and I just wanted to show you that that's that's how the passage starts. And uh, and when it says first of all, then, that word then is the same word as therefore. Um, it's the same Greek word, and uh, and it's a it's a th- this is a, a consequent assertion that's being made based on what was talked about in chapter one. So, if if we're talking about chapter one, saying we got to keep the gospel central and we got to avoid it, all the other stuff that we fight about, we got to keep the gospel central. We got to keep Jesus supreme, and then the apostle Paul is now applying this and saying, first of all, then. Since you got to keep the gospel central, since you got to keep Jesus supreme, this is kind of the stuff that it's going to look like. And so if the leadership of the church gets this right, if the leadership of the church is keeping the gospel central and keeping Jesus supreme, then this is the impact it'll have on the congregation. This is the effect it'll have on the church. That's what he's going to talk about in this chapter. So uh, in order for for the gospel to gain the response that it should... uh, Things need to, to line up, okay? When you keep the gospel central, people must behave in a certain way in order for the gospel not just to be talked about, but to be lived out, right? It's not just people coming and talking about the gospel from the pulpit. It's that the church has to live it out. And so chapter one says, keep the gospel central. Chapter two and three will be like, this is how you live it out. Chapter two being like, this is how the congregation lives it out. And chapter three being, this is how you select leaders that will, uh, that will uh, demonstrate it. And, uh, and so chapters one, two, and three kind of form this big unit of keep the gospel central and avoid false teaching. And this is what it looks like in the congregation and in the leadership. Now, chapters four and five will repeat that cycle. It'll be like, avoid this uh, false doctrine and keep the gospel central, and this is what it looks like in the congregation, the leadership. And then chapter six will do the same thing. It'll be like, avoid this false teaching, uh, keep the gospel central, and this is what it looks like in the congregation and the leadership. So that's what's going to happen, okay? Chapters one, two, and three, they kind of form this, uh, this unit in a way, and chapters four and five form a unit in a way, and then chapter six forms a unit in a way. Uh, and what we can basically do is section off the book in three, uh, three parts like that. But since each chapter uh, really has its own wealth of issues, ideas, principles, and applications that we ought to spend time on, we're going to take this book basically one chapter uh, per week in order to just kind of focus on, uh, on what's being talked about in each of these chapters. Um, so today, we are still building off of Paul's warning 
against uh, that tendency to argue over theology, that argumentative mentality to, uh, to try to aspire for a, a, the role of a leader, like a, you know, to, be a, to be a teacher of the law, to get into a position of influence and power and, uh, and, and honor over other people. Uh, he, he's warning against that kind of mentality, the, the kind that, uh, that, that fights and, and squabbles and quarrels and debates over peripheral and spurious theology. And he's doing that because the church that, he's, that, that Timothy is serving at, Paul's writing to, to Timothy at the church in Ephesus, and that church was a divided church with people that were fighting over unimportant issues all the time. And they, some of those people had taken some serious positions, uh, pos, pos, positions, this is going to be one of those mornings, you guys. Some of those people have taken positions of leadership. And so uh, Paul had to, uh, he had to, well, remove a couple of these guys, Hemenes and Alexander, and he had to put Timothy in their place. He had to remove bad leadership and put good leadership in its place. Uh, they were squab- squabbling for a status. They were vying for power. They were fighting for high standing to separate who was better than whom. The church was a mixture, by the way, in Ephesus, of uh, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, uh, free and slave. It was, a, it was a mixed bag, and there were clashing opinions of who was better. The church was supposed to feel like a family, where we all come together, everyone belongs in the room, and nobody feels like a second-class citizen. That's the way that church ought to feel. Right? That's the way church ought to be, not just feel, but that's the way it should be. And yet, that's, uh, that's not the way it was in Ephesus at this time. Nobody wanted to kneel or stoop or bow or do anything that lowered themselves. They all wanted uh, positions of authority and honor and influence and power. So there's a lot of arguing so, uh, to the point where it's the first and largest discussion of this letter. This is the biggest problem in the church in Ephesus that, uh, that the Apostle Paul is addressing. Now, he had to excommunicate two of those leaders, right? Hymenaeus and Alexander. And, uh, uh, and he writes with apostolic authority. He, he starts off the letter saying, you know, I'm Paul, I'm an apostle by the command of God and of Jesus Christ, right? I'm, I'm an apostle of Jesus, I'm appointed by Jesus, and I'm commanded by God and by Jesus to speak to you on these things. So this is not his own authority that he's speaking with, he's speaking with the authority of God, he's speaking with the authority of Jesus on the stuff that he writes about. And he, he sets that up right in the beginning because he needs to dethrone false teachers, and he needs to reset the focus, and he's going to do that. And then, having removed uh, Hymenaeus and Alexander and put Timothy in place, then in, in next week's chapter, chapter 3, he's going to talk about how to install the right kind of leadership, the kind that's going to keep the, the church moving in the right direction. So Paul's expectation is that if the leadership of a church keeps the gospel central, if you have a good, healthy, uh, spiritual leadership in the church, then two things are going to be evident in the congregation. Note takers, we're going to have two movements here, okay? Uh, The first is that the church will pray for people that are in power. The church will pray for people that are in power. That's verses 1 through 7 of chapter 2. And then the church will worship without quarreling for power. That's verses 8 through 15. The church will worship without quarreling for power. All right, let's start with the, with the church praying for those in power. I'll, I'll read to you the first seven verses of the chapter. This is what it says. First Timothy 2, chapter, uh, t- chapter 2, verse 1 says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, 
intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Well, here's, uh, here's Paul's first exhortation. His first, his first application, the, the thing that you should see when you have a, a, a leadership that's doing the right thing. Um, and it's that uh, we pray for those in power. When, and uh, why? Well, you know, what's going on here? Well, uh, catch on to the urgency first of Paul's tone, right? He says, I urge, right? First of all, then I urge. That's strong language. He's not saying, I recommend, I suggest. He's saying, I urge. Like, I, I cannot recommend this enough. I cannot suggest this more strongly. I urge. It's, it's something that Paul feels is urgent, and so he urges. And it's something that uh, if we think about this, we don't do enough, right? And I, I'm just going to go ahead and, and, uh, and put myself right on the hot seat here and say this is something that we don't do enough. It's something that I don't do enough, right? The more I think about this passage, the more I ask myself, how many times do we actually pray for kings and people in high positions? How, how many times do we pray for our president? I, I think about how just, uh, it, what was it, two days ago, uh, our, our president was diagnosed, came out positive with uh, COVID-19, and he's, he's been uh, rushed to the hospital for precautionary measures and all that stuff. Uh, at what point did we pray for him? I think about how we're in an election year. Right now it's October, and it's in November that we, have, uh, we, we go to the voting booths and we fill out the ballots. How many of us have been praying about this? Right, this is something that I just feel like uh, it's kind of been lost. We haven't thought about it a whole lot. Now, it, it's not that we don't care, and it's not, it's not that we think that it's unimportant. It's just I, I don't think we've emphasized it enough because we haven't really realized the way that Paul is saying, this is a big deal. I urge that this happens. Right? If you want to keep the gospel central, you've got to pray for these people. That's an interesting thought because I never... I, I never thought the church is in any way dependent on uh, the leadership of the nation because the leadership that uh, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, all, that, all of them, they functioned under these cruel Caesars of the Roman Empire who were persecuting the church and, uh, and, and they didn't need the emperor to help them out. They didn't need tax benefits. They didn't need laws to go in their favor. The gospel spread like wildfire even during the harshest of circumstances. And so I never felt like we need the president to be on our side. We need Congress. We need the Senate. I guess I never thought that way. And yet, uh, here's the, the Apostle Paul saying, you've got to pray for these people. You have to pray for them. And he uses four different words for prayer. He says uh, uh, supplications. Then he says prayers, which is just the word for prayer, prayer. Right? Supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. Those are four different words for prayer. That's a heavy emphasis. He's urging, and he says it four times. What's weird here is that uh, the Apostle Paul usually 
asks for prayers for himself or for missionaries, for boldness, for the preaching of the gospel. He he's, uh, typically asks for the church to pray for believers, right? Pray for the missionaries. Pray for the missionary effort. But this is one of the only times in the Bible where we as believers are told to pray for unbelievers. How often do you ever see that? Right? Jesus will say, uh, pray for the, uh, the harvest. You know, we need more laborers. Pray that there would be more laborers. The harvest is plentiful, but laborers are few. And so pray that God would raise up more missionaries, more, more evangelists, more people to spread the gospel, laborers. And that sounds like we're praying for believers. And yet here's one of those, uh, these weird moments where, where we're asked to pray for unbelievers. We're urged to do it. And it's, it's emphatic. These are people who are in positions of authority, right? They have, uh, they, they have the, the influence and the power to affect the environment in which our, uh, our message operates, right? They can decide whether or not it's legal or illegal for churches to gather. They can decide whether or not it's legal or illegal to, to worship God. That's what governments end up doing. They start regulating religions and things. So when we're asked to pray for these people in, in high positions, there's a pragmatic reason to it. Because these people directly affect the, uh, the ease at which and the safety with which we can spread the gospel. We want the gospel to be central. And so we must pray for the leadership of this, uh, of this nation in order, to, in order to allow us to, to move the message, to advance the gospel. And it's not just pray for them. Paul is also saying be thankful for them, which is ludicrous in an age of Roman emperors, right? He says be thankful for them. I mean, you think we have ungodly rulers because we do, right? Uh, Nations today have ungodly rulers, but we're not like the only ones. You think that that, uh, we have it bad today? Maybe we do. Maybe we do. But, you know, do you think that church is uh, targeted and attacked by the government at times? Maybe. Maybe it is. But Paul wrote this during the reign and after the reign of Emperor Nero, right? He's the guy, along with other Caesars, who routinely persecuted the church, tortured Christians, uh, lit them on fire while they were still alive, in order to, uh, literally in order to, to light up his parties. You know, he would, he would invite a bunch of people over for banquets and things. He'd cover Christians in tar, and then he'd burn them instead of having torches on sconces. He would have Christians... Up on, uh, up on poles, and they were burning, and they were the, they were the lighting for the evening. It was, uh, it was during his reign that Christians were thrown into lion's den, torn apart in arenas, etc. I don't know, right off the bat, reading this chapter, you know, like I, I read this, and so first of all, pray for people, kings, high positions, and I, I just kind of like push past this verse, uh, you know, I, I don't think about it often. And so when, when I'm preparing to like, you know, preach on this thing, I, I, I think about it. Because I, you know, I just want to read the thing and I want to get to the sentimental part of the, of the book that makes, you, makes your heart kind of you know, pound a little bit and you want to you well up with tears and things. <sighs> Spoiler alert. This chapter is not that. Okay? This, this chapter is not going to make you cry, but it might upset you. I always want to just push past verses like this, like, I'll pray for, for leaders and things, and I just want to get to like the sentimental parts, and yet I can't get past these two verses 
these two sentences without realizing that I just don't do this enough, right? I look back on my Christian faith starting from college when, uh, when I really committed to Jesus. I, I look back on my Christian faith starting in college and I just ask myself, what, did, what have I prayed about? What has been my pattern of the things that I prayed about from college to now, right? I'm, I'm, right now, I'm 40 years old. I am at the point where I have been a Christian for literally half my life. 20 years gestating in the church and then 20 years having committed my life to Christ, right? So what have I, what have I prayed about uh, from college to now? And I look at it and I'm like, oh, I remember praying uh, if, you know, that I'd get passing grades because uh, I ditched class a lot. So I prayed a lot about passing grades. Uh, I prayed a lot about uh, trying to get a job, right? Uh, which is silly. Like I was trying to work at Circuit City and CompUSA and stuff. You know, those, those businesses don't even exist anymore. Uh, I would pray about, uh, you know, God take care of this sickness. I feel sick. I got a stomach ache. You know, I can't, I can't sleep and that kind of stuff. I'd pray about that. I'd pray for friends. Right when they say, "Hey, can you pray for me?" and I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah." And and what, what would I pray about regarding them? The same things, that they'd get good grades, that they would uh, get the job, or get into the school, or that they would get healthy again. If I rephrase it, and if I categorize these things a little bit differently, I grew up praying for health, wealth, and happiness. That's the prosperity gospel. That's the pattern of the things that I prayed for. Think about, uh, think about that and, uh, and evaluate yourself on this. What, what are the things you pray for? How many times do you pray for something or someone that has nothing to do with you? Right? That's, uh, the stuff that I was praying about growing up, you know, from college to now, I, I just look back on it, and a lot of that stuff is stuff that's rooted in the temporariness of the earth. And it's not about uh, praying for for people to receive the gospel and to come to salvation. I prayed for things that false doctrines advertise. Paul says to pray for leadership, pray for politicians, pray for law enforcement. These are people in high positions. He says pray for all people. Pray for things that aren't you. Pray for things that aren't even about you. Pray for things that, that won't even help you. If God cares about it, pray about it. Not if you care about it. Not if it, if it affects your life directly. But if God cares about it, pray about it. God wants justice in the land. Pray for justice in the land. God wants the gospel to move in the land. Pray for the gospel to move in the land. That means that that has to happen through the workings of the leaders of this nation. Through people in high positions of authority. Uh, the, that's the whole point, right? The purpose of, of thankful prayer for leaders is so that we don't sit there and start griping against our leaders, start uh, making it a habit to just make fun of leaders and to become cynical and uh, make everything a joke and forget the severity, but to, to be thankful for what we do have and then to pray for what we need. Our hope is that the gospel will be carried out without, without unnecessary hindrance from the government. Our, our, uh, our drive is because God wants everyone to be saved. If you, you see it right there in the verse, right? God wants everyone to be saved. That's what he wants. 
Now, how do we get there? Well, we got to be able to preach the gospel. We got to be allowed to operate, move around freely and stuff, not persecuted, right? Without, without laws and policies and things getting in our way. So we got to pray. We got to pray for our leaders to make it easy for us to get the gospel out, save more people. If that means defending the, uh, the freedom of, of religion and the right to assembly for everybody, for all religions, then yeah, that's what we got to that's what we've got to fight for so that we as a church can operate. Paul uses the, the terms godly and dignified, right? He, uh, where does he say that? Right there at the end of verse 2, he says godly and dignified in every way, right? Godly and dignified. And that's, those are interesting words to me because um, they aren't necessarily Christian words. Like if I say the word godly to you, that sounds like a Christian thing. You know, oh, this was a, I, like that was a godly truth. You know, if you, if you use the word godly, it sounds like you're relating it to God in heaven, but uh, the word godly that's translated here is, uh, is the same word for just religious. It's, it's kind of a word that, that, that's a pious, religious, very faithful, very spiritual, very mystical. That's the, that word is very flexible, and it was used for any kind of, uh, of religious thought back in that day. And dignified just meant respectable, worthy of respect, you know? So like these words, uh, godly and dignified in every way, these were words that unbelievers would use about religious people. And uh, Paul wants, uh, wants, he applies this to the church because he wants believers to pray for leaders so that we could live these religious and, and respectable lives. So basically, he, he wants our relationship with the, with the leaders of this country to not be one where we're cynical and we start bashing on them and, and always making fun of them and then we turn it into a joke and, and that's all it is. But it's got to be where we're thankful for the leaders that we have for what they provide and we're still praying for great change for the things that we need. And if, if, if that's our attitude, then the way that we talk about them and the way that we talk to them and the way that we engage society would be radically different than someone who just thinks everything's a joke or that it's so hopeless that we just need to make fun of it. And so the leadership of this nation would look at the church and say, these guys aren't crazy. You know, they're not doing anything ridiculous. They're, they're actually, they're just religious and they're respectable. And that's precisely how we want our, our reputation with the world to be set up. That's how, how Paul is always moving the church. Whenever he uses that word godly and dignified, and especially when they're together in the same way, it always has to do with the relationship to the outside world. It comes up a lot in 1 Timothy several times, a few times in, in 2 Timothy, and, and uh, once or twice in, in Titus. All three of these pastoral epistles he uses godly and dignified. It's such a weird mystery here because God wants us to pray for kings and authorities so we can spread the gospel peacefully. And the reason for that is because God desires all men to be saved, to come to a knowledge of the truth, right? Um, and so I, I have to ask myself, why does God want us to pray for kings and authorities? Because if he wants a godly government, if he wants a, if he wants a healthy government, can't he just make one? Isn't he sovereign? Isn't he in control? Right? And, uh, and if God wants all people to be saved, can't he just save them? Right? If, you, if you want to save them, why don't you just save them? You're God. There's no one that says you can't do that. And the weird answer to both those, those uh, questions is that God wants to operate through us. That's how it's always been, that we are his hands and feet. If he wants to affect the nation, he wants to do it through his people. His people will go out and do that. He wants us to pray for change. He wants us to, uh, he, he wants us to, to be the ones to bring about the revolution. 
He responds to prayers, and that's his, his, that's his way of doing that. That's his, that's his modus operandi, right? It's, it's how he does things. He wants us to spread the gospel for people to come to salvation. He has ordained the means to the end. That's why Jesus, uh, when he teaches on prayer, he says, like, you know, anything you ask in my name will be given, right? If you pray, with the, 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 you're, if you're praying the right thing with the right heart, It'll be given. He says that in John 14, John 15, John 16. says this several times. Paul says in Romans 10, how, are, how is anyone going to believe unless someone goes and preaches to them? Right? God has ordained the means. So we don't just go, God, you do it. We say, God, do it and, and do it through me or do it through the leaders of our nation or do it through etc. Paul then wants us to pray for those in power. He wants us not to uh, to just become cynical and, and, uh, and ridicule them or, or to give up hope for the nation, but always to pray. He wants us to pray for those in power so that uh, we can, what we would ask is that we have the right leaders in place to establish a nation where the gospel can move quickly and freely. Not only do we pray for those in power, but he also wants us not to quarrel for power. Right? to worship without quarreling for power. And that's verses 8 through 15. I'm going to read this to you. Uh, and, uh, and you're going to see why I'm going to say that this is, not like, uh, this is not the passage that gets you all sentimental, but it can upset people. Listen to what it says, verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now imagine you're me. It's a scary thought. Imagine you're me staring at this passage, knowing the socio-political climate of people today. And you see exactly what it says, and it says what it means, and it means what it says. And so you have to ask yourself how eager you are to say what has to be said to a group of maybe 100 people of varying opinions. On top of that, still imagine you're me, you know that this letter is about keeping the gospel central and keeping Jesus supreme. And we just covered a section that seemed to be just about, you know, praying for politicians when it's, when it's really about keeping the gospel central. It's not about praying for politicians necessarily. It's about we want the gospel central, so pray for everyone in power so that we can keep the gospel central. And now we get to this section that specifically talks about the roles of men and women in the church. And you can just feel how this can so easily explode into debate over the definition of this or the implications of that and, and the, uh, you know, the, the fairness issue and equality between men and women, etc. And the theologian in you wants to get into that and spin out a two or three part miniseries on the biblical understanding of gender. 
But if you did that right now, you'd be making the roles of men, men and women the main topic and you'd be losing the gospel as the central message. So there's a lot that has to be dealt with in explaining this passage. We've got to keep the main thing the main thing. I will do my best. Even though this passage talks about men and women, it is still a part of the larger context. Remember that the church in Ephesus had this problem of people arguing and obsessing over different doctrines, right? I'm just going to, uh, I'm going to dial it back and go to chapter 1, verse 3. I'll read you the paragraph, okay? This is what it said in the previous chapter. It says in verse 3, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, this is Paul talking to Timothy, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Let's stop there, okay? The problem that was going on in this church in that day was that people were divided and arguing and vying to be teachers, aspiring to be in positions of power and influence and honor. And Paul is telling Timothy to get things back on track by avoiding all the divisive stuff, all the divisive arguments that are not about the gospel. And to stay centered on the gospel, stay, stay on the main thing, keep the main thing the main thing. And he tells Timothy to pray for the country, pray for your leaders so that we can peace, peacefully live godly lives because God wants people to be saved. You know, we want the nation to not mess with the church and so let's pray for the leaders so that we can just go ahead and live peaceful, godly lives. We can be religious and worthy of respect because God wants everyone to be saved. So we got to pray for that. And now Paul tells the men in the church to pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And you can see how that is connected to the context. It's a direct rebuke against the divisive anger and the quarreling that, that was going on, the same anger and quarreling that necessitated this letter. Right? Men were fighting with men. They were, they were splitting the church over dumb stuff. Things that weren't important. And Paul says, like, instead of anger and quarreling, there should be prayer going on. Prayer with holy hands, like, you know, hands that are blameless, that have not committed evil. Right? You can't rightly pray to God with proper humility and reverence if you're fighting with one another and hating each other. So the men need to be corrected on this because it was particularly relegated to the men. That's how they were divided. They need to be corrected on this because they need to be servants at prayer more than they need to be teachers of law. That's where, where Paul is driving them. He, he's saying the men want to be so great and yet they should become small. It's the least that will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But that divisiveness was not just affecting men. The women are rebuked here too, and they're rebuked for two different reasons. Apparently, some women were dressing fancy, flaunting their wealth, with, uh, which you can do if you're rich, if you have all the, the fancy stuff. But the, if you remember, in Ephesus, the, the congregation was pretty mixed between Jews and Gentiles, men and women, slave and free, rich and poor, right? There were people who had uh, an abundance of resources, and then there were people who were considered property. So coming to church 
wearing shiny jewelry all sticking out of your braided hair. And, you know, that's how, kind of the way that they would adorn, them, adorn themselves uh, with fancy clothing and stuff. That was not promoting godliness. That was, that was starting to make a statement, a fashion statement of status and success and power and influence. Right? It, it, it's not to say that jewelry is sinful. Jewelry's not, I'm, I'm getting nervous because I'm wearing right now a ring, two necklaces, and four bracelets. And a shiny belt. Right? It's not to say that jewelry is, is sinful. That's, that's not the point. And uh, for the record, all of my jewelry added together costs maybe 30-something dollars. So it's not fancy. Right? This is not a fashion statement. It's a cry for help. Okay. Uh, it, it's not that, that jewelry is a, is a sin issue. That's not the point. The point is that people were dressing in such a way as that when they come to church, they would become, they'd be so impressive. Right? Wow, you have that. You have that that $3,000 purse or clutch, right? You, you kind of uh, start seeing that this is where, where some people might start to have a, a different kind of power play. It's not a theological debate. That's for the nerds. But it's a different kind of quarreling, a different kind of rivalry. I mean, if, if you came to church and you found out that you were wearing the same thing as someone else, how would you feel? Men would be like, bro. It's not always that way for women. Right? Walk up, you see someone wearing something that that you're wearing, you know, you just walk up, you see them from a distance, you're like, oh my gosh, I gotta go home. You gotta go and change. Why? I don't know. I've never understood that. Right? But clearly I never understood that. I wear the same thing every day. It's a different power play, right? This is judging one another based on wealth and fashion, which happens. Even believers get tempted to think about wealth as status, about fashion as fortune, right? It's very easy to get caught up in that. Like, if, if, because this person has all this stuff, he's great. Because she has all this stuff, she's great. And maybe today it's more than jewelry and clothing. Maybe there are more parameters to that. Maybe it's education, occupation, talent, attractiveness, etc. It could be a bunch of different variables, but in any case, it would be this way of, of, uh, of separating the church into, into vertical tiers, you know? Who's better than whom? I'm above you because I have this. Regardless of if it's fashion or not, it was divisiveness, it was a ploy for power and status to think that you're better than someone else in the church. That somehow you're worthy of honor when you needed to be rescued by a savior just as much as the next person. The second rebuke is the one that causes commotion. This is the one that, uh, that really becomes the point of tension in our culture today. It is the prohibition for women to have spiritual authority over men. And it's going to take a sizable amount of explanation, I'm sure you can imagine. Uh, uh, I know that there are people who have trouble with this because men and women are treated differently uh, in the church and it can feel unfair. I don't think this determines with any reliable acuity whether or not you're a Christian based on how you feel about this passage. But it will put to the test very clearly whether or not you trust God's word or the wisdom of the world. Your line of argumentation, your, your, your line of reasoning will either be reasons that an unbeliever can generate or it will be the clear teaching of Scripture. And that's what, what this is going to expose today. 
where you're deriving your values and beliefs on this issue, either from culture or from personal feelings or from the Bible. Why does Paul say this? Why does Paul say, I don't permit a woman to teach over a man? I don't permit a woman to have authority over over a man in the church. Why? It, it, It seems as though it wasn't just men who got into the quarrels and debates uh, and were vying for positions of leadership and influence. Ephesus was more of a liberal city in the Roman Empire by comparison on the issue of gender roles. So Paul very clearly and adamantly asserts that spiritual authority in the church is male. Anyone who reads this has to make an honest evaluation here on whether or not the Bible is accurate here or not. Whether or not God is wrong or if he's right. That's the underlying issue. Now, I I somehow end up guest speaking at a lot of churches and campus ministries. I blame Patrick for most of those. Uh, Oftentimes, I do question and answer sessions when I go guest speaking. Uh, I get asked about whether or not I believe in women pastors. My answer invariably is, does the Bible believe in women in pastoral leadership? Um, But I, I get what they're asking. They're asking if I believe that the Bible is teaching whether or not women uh, are, are okay to be in pastoral leadership. So I always come to this passage first. This is the first passage I always come to because this is kind of the one that, that speaks about it most directly. And it's surprising to me how many people have, have all these canned rebuttals uh, to this passage that, have, uh, that you can't tell that they're Christian by the, the nature of the rebuttal. It sounds like an unbeliever could, could say this very same thing because it doesn't necessarily posit a, a, a faith in the Lord. Uh, it just talks about well, sociological thoughts. And yet, uh, how many people uh, I find when, I, when, I'm, when I'm discussing this, and I really try not to make this a, a dividing issue. I, I, I very clearly say this is a secondary doctrine, and you and I are Christian brothers and sisters if you, if you love the Lord Jesus Christ, if you trust in him. But uh, when, this, when this comes up, and I give my answer, how fast I get these rebuttals uh, about people saying, like, that's not what that passage is about. And I say, what is the letter about? And then they don't have an answer. And I say, what is this chapter about? And they don't have an answer. And I say, how does this passage fit in with the passage before and after? They don't have an answer to that. And I'm just curious how they think that they're such experts on the passage if they don't know what any of it is about. Some say that this is just Paul's opinion. You know, they say, it's, it's just Paul saying, I do not permit. I do not permit. It's his personal opinion. He's just speaking for himself. And we've already covered this, that Paul is writing declaratively as an apostle appointed by Jesus by the command of God. Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And we had to add on to that the presuppositional concept that the Holy Spirit is inspiring and ordaining the writing of this letter authoritatively. So when Paul does not permit something, the Holy Spirit is telling him not to permit it because the Holy Spirit does not permit it. And when the Holy Spirit does not permit it, that means God does not permit it. Others will say that this passage is very cultural. It's really just about Ephesus back in that time. Uh, It's specific to the time and place, and oftentimes they can't tell me the time nor the place. But here's how I know it's not cultural. Paul's reasoning for the difference between men and and women uh, in, in their roles in the church is grounded not in what's going on in Ephesus, but it's grounded in what happened in Genesis. Right? He takes the whole argument back to Genesis. He says, I don't permit a, a woman to teach over a man. Why? Because when God created man and woman, Adam was formed first and then Eve was formed second. That's his reasoning. He said the way that men and women were created before sin entered the world, before culture existed, before Ephesus was even a blip on the map, 
before any of that was true, when God designed men and women, he designed men first and, and women afterwards. And that was a, a way to communicate to, you know, to the society back then. If you're an older brother to a younger brother, the older brother has, uh, has authority over the younger brother. That's why Jesus is oftentimes called the firstborn of all creation. It's not to say that he was born and he was a, he's a created being. He's not. He's eternal. He's eternally existed. But to call him firstborn is to say he has the highest authority over all. Say that, to, to say that one came before is to say that it has greater authority. That's the, uh, that's the, the kind of way that Paul is, uh, is communicating here. So it's not a cultural thing because the last time we checked, Adam and Eve were not from Ephesus. They existed long before. And it doesn't matter whether or not you believe the earth is thousands of years old or billions of years old. Because either way, Adam and Eve existed before culture existed. It's not a cultural argument. Paul's reason is that the original human beings in their perfect created state, even before sin entered the world, by God's ordained design, had a distinction in their roles. And the man had the role of authority. Now, some will say that it's because the women in Ephesus were not educated. That's why. The women were not educated while the men were. Now, that's a true statement. Uh, women were less educated in Ephesus than men. That is a true statement. But that is not the reason why, uh, why Paul is making this statement. He's not saying uh, women can't have authority over men because they're less educated. He certainly doesn't say that. Because when he re refers to Adam and Eve, you have to remember that Adam and Eve were both uneducated, equally uneducated, and yet they had a distinction in roles. They were both moments old. Not days not weeks or years, they were moments old. And the, the distinction in authority was established. In fact, every woman today who has ever graduated elementary school is far more educated than both Adam and Eve. So this wasn't about education credentials. It, it, it wasn't about that. It wasn't about uh, you know, how, how well you were trained. It wasn't. Adam and Eve were equally uneducated. They had different, differentiated roles because of God's original design. So none of these attempts to make the Bible feminist stand to reason if you listen to what the original author very clearly intended. It's no surprise that the words that trigger upset feelings are uh, let, the woman, let, let a woman learn quietly and with all submissiveness. Like, those are the parts that really rub people the wrong way, uh, including the authority issue, but uh, I, I want to clue you in on two important contextual ideas to hang on to here, okay? First is that everyone was to learn quietly and with all submissiveness, including the men, until some of the men finished their training and were ordained. That is the normal way for people to learn in that culture, Right in, in that day, everyone learned quietly and with all submissiveness. That was the normal way for men to learn even when they were training under a rabbi. And it wasn't until they graduated and got ordained, publicly recognized that they are, uh, they are apt to do the job and they are called to do the job. It wasn't until that moment that they could now speak at the pulpit. But until then, they had to remain silent, meaning that you can come to church, you can have conversations, and they can say hello and stuff like that, but they can't come and teach from the pulpit unless they were trained and ordained. And if you weren't trained or ordained, everyone is to remain quiet 
and learn with all submissiveness. So that's the first thing that you got to know about, uh, about this, this issue. It, it wasn't a subjugation of women. It, was not, uh, it wasn't this cruel way of saying that, uh, that, that women are lower than men, and so they, ha- they have to learn with quietness and submissiveness, and then the men can do whatever they want. It was not that. Everyone learns with quietness and, and submissiveness, right? Some men can be trained and ordained and then take, uh, take a stand to, to speak. That was it. But the second thing I want you to, uh, to key in on is the word let. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. And the reason why this is important is because, like I said, in Ephesus, women were less educated than men. And some, some people thought that that was the way it's supposed to be. Women are, you know, you're not allowed to think, you're not allowed to read, you're not allowed to, to start developing your brain. You know, you're just supposed to be there to, to be a baby factory. That's the way that they would just talk about it. And people have abused that and, and used that historically, even in the church. And that's not what Paul is saying. He's saying, let a woman learn. You have to let her learn. You have to let her learn just like everybody else gets to learn, right? Let her learn. She, she gets to learn just like everybody else, quiet and submissive. That's what the church is supposed to do. No anger, no quarreling, no divisiveness, none of the squabbling, none of this vying for power, none of this rivalry over, over who's in, in leadership positions and all that kind of stuff. That needs to be gone from the church. He says but the women should not be excluded. They should be allowed to, to come in and learn. And he says they should be allowed to come in and learn, but... They should come in and learn, but certain men should be allowed to speak, and that's it. Could they preach at the pulpit as spiritual authorities over men? No. But could they learn everything that the men were taught? Yes. This is not as prohibitive as it sounds to us today, and it's not as liberal as some women in Ephesus tried to operate. Now, uh, don't get thrown off by the whole childbearing thing, by the way, there in, in the end of verse 15. You know, it says uh, Eve became a transgressor, but she'll be saved through childbearing if they continue in, in faith and holiness and, and that kind of stuff, right? Don't get thrown off by that, right? It's not that women have to keep making babies in order to be saved. That's not what that means. That's not what that's saying. Um, this is, this is a, a point-for-point equivalent uh, uh, correlation to, to Genesis. It says the woman, Eve, was deceived and became a transgressor. Right? And it says, yet she, Eve, will be saved through childbearing. It's an interesting thing to say. Are we saved by works? Are we saved by just creating babies? No. You can immediately rule that out. You know that that's not what, it, that's not what it's saying. So what is, what is meant by this, she will be saved through childbearing? Well, because Eve, Eve takes a lot of criticism for being, uh, for being deceived, right? People historically have blamed her as though sin is her fault. And interestingly, the Bible says it's not. Eve's reputation is, uh, is going to be redeemed or rescued or saved by childbearing, by the bearing of a child. And the question is, which child? Now remember, Paul is referring back to Genesis 3 where the, the, the uh, fall of man happened where sin first entered the world where Adam and Eve first committed sin, right? And in that chapter, when that happens, um, Eve is, uh, when, when she's cursed, um, there's also a moment where Satan is cursed and it says that the offspring of the woman will crush Satan's head. The offspring of the woman will crush Satan's head. So when, you, when you're thinking about this, Eve fell into sin. And the whole world is in sin now. 
but she'll be saved through the bearing of a child. One of her offspring will defeat sin. That's how she's saved. That's how we're all saved. Right? Sure, Eve got into, in, into some bad reputation with what, what went on. And she'll be saved just like we're saved, which is through the bearing of a certain child, a very specific child, that's Jesus. Her offspring, the seed of the woman, will come and crush the head of Satan. So it's, it's not that all women have to have babies in order to be saved. That's not it. It, it says Eve, Eve is saved and all women are saved by the, women, by the woman's offspring. Singular. That's Jesus. And for all women, they're saved by that child uh, that was born too. They're saved by Jesus. That's for all women and all men. And it says they're saved uh, by that child that was born if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Look at that. We're all saved the same way by Jesus if we continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. That is a statement of equal standing before the Lord as men and women of God, saved under the same conditions, loved the same. So really the issue here is not skill level, gifting, aptitude, competence, right? Most, most women, if you look at the church today, most women read more Christian books than men. If you, and that's just statistics, right? So technically, you could argue that women have more training, more theological, theological training on average than men. Women are typically the greater percentage of population in churches, Bible studies, Christian clubs, campus ministries. And at no point does Paul say it's because women aren't as good at preaching as men are. He never says that. He doesn't go, women are more emotional and men are more rational. He doesn't say that. He doesn't use any of that kind of, 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 uh, of reasoning. He just says, because God designed them this way. Adam came first, Eve came second, That's, and he established a certain rhythm there. And his reasoning is grounded in God's original design for mankind, uh, even, even before sin entered the world, and then even after sin entered the world. Adam wasn't deceived, Eve was deceived, she became a transgressor, which means she became the, she became the perpetrator, the first sinner. And you see that, right? That, that Eve committed the first sin, but then here's what's weird. Eve was the one that committed the first sin, and then Adam is the one that's held responsible. He was the one that God held responsible because of his failed spiritual leadership. Look at uh, Romans 5.12, right? We'll put it up on the board. Uh, it says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. Well, yes, Eve sinned first, but Adam was blamed because in their original design, he was a spiritual leader. And it's the leader's fault. That's how it is, right? That's the burden of leadership, in case you haven't noticed. If a country does poorly, you blame the president, or whoever's in charge. If a company does poorly, you blame the boss, the CEO. If a church does poorly, you blame the pastor. Right? That's what happens. When you have someone who's in charge, that's the leader, when things are going poorly, you blame that person. Look at even how the, the curse on woman is given. Genesis 3, verse 16. It says, To the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. The man, th that means that the man was cursed in his work and the woman was cursed in her relationships, namely in, in childbearing and in her relationship with her husband. Her husband is the authority over her and her desire is contrary to that authority. There will always be this, uh, this 
tendency, this, this, uh, this desire to usurp that authority, to overthrow that authority and say that, no, that's not true. She will desire to usurp her husband, take his position, be his equal or his superior, and yet God says that will not be so. These aren't the only passages that say this. 1 Corinthians 14.33, it says at the end of that, it says, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now this issue here again is not about having conversations at church. It is about the authoritative position of speaking from the pulpit. It's a, it's a frequent command. It comes up again and again in the Bible. Women are, are, are told uh, to teach younger women, but it's al- they're always pro- prohibited from teaching over men. That didn't actually apply to teaching over children, by the way. Women did teach Bible studies at home and stuff, but people apply that differently on, on the issue of children's pastors and stuff like that. You know, they have different... Uh, well, they, there's uh, 31 flavors on how they apply any of this stuff, right? 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3 is uh, three, kind of the whole first half of that chapter, actually, in 1 Corinthians 11. It says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So if you, if you get into the context of this, this, this is actually about a cultural issue. It's about the traditional head coverings uh, that, uh, that people would wear in Corinth. Their city practiced that. It's a cultural practice. Right? It's not one that's done in our culture today. This is specifically targeting something that is relegated to a time and place. It applied to Gentile believers in Corinth. It did not apply to Jews the same way. Because uh, what it's going to say is women should cover their heads and men should not. Because that was the proper way in Corinth of how you displayed authority. That's how, how, how a woman said that there's authority over her. Her husband is authority over her. Now, Jewish men don't even operate that way. They wear uh, uh, kippahs or yarmulkes, right? They cover their heads. So this is not an instruction to Jews. This is an instruction to the Corinthian church. It has always been the the, the Jewish, not always, but it's been a long time practice of the Jewish uh, people to wear the the kippah or the yarmulke and stuff. That was, that was, they covered, the men covered their head even when they prayed. So what they're talking about here in 1 Corinthians 11 is not applying to Jewish believers, but in Corinth, there was this giant feminist movement happening where, where women would uh, shave their heads and go around bare-breasted, topless, in order to say that we are equals with men and there, there should be no difference in our, uh, in our roles. And Paul was shutting that down and saying that movement was, uh, was, uh, was dishonoring and disgraceful toward God. So while the application here is specific to the Corinthian culture, the principles that he's going to state are not. He says that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the wife is her husband. The head, of, the head of the woman is the man, and the head of the man is Jesus. That's what he says. Now, if you, if you follow the logic there, that means that men and women both don't operate by their own authority. They ought not to. They ought not to, uh, to pursue for their own glory. Let me show you what it says. Verse 7. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man was made not from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. 
Now, this right here is additional elaboration on the original design of man and woman. Man was formed first, has authority. Man is the image and glory of God. Women is the glory of man. The women were commanded to wear symbols of authority over them. The men were commanded not to give up authority, but to function with the authority of Jesus. 1 Timothy 3 verse 2 says, uh, therefore an overseer, this is next week's chapter by the way, uh, therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Right, that's for next week, but at least you see here that leaders of the church, overseers, uh, hopefully they'd be married, um, and the, the wife, if you understand all these passages kind of you know, sitting together, a wife is under the authority of her husband, so she cannot be an overseer. She cannot be equal over him. Moreover, the word husband here is a, is a gender-specific term. It's aner. It literally means male. Uh, it, it means, therefore, an overseer must be a one female male, a one woman man, a man who's not uh, polygamous, a man who, who, uh, who isn't promiscuous. A one female male. That's what it says. Ephesians 5 says the husband and wife are a metaphor for Jesus and the church. And if they're a metaphor for Jesus and the church, you have to understand Jesus has authority over the church. They are not equal in authority. 1 Peter 3 says it is right for a wife to regard her husband's authority, submitting to it, even calling him Lord. I think you get the idea. I'll, I'll, I'll skip the rest. The consistent assertion of the Bible is that men are to spiritually lead. And men, if you receive that as, as good news, like you can do whatever you want, I think you've completely missed the point. You don't know the gravity of the job. It's difficult news. God holds you responsible for someone else's spiritual well-being. God holds you responsible Every man in this church, God holds you responsible. Not just responsible for yourself. God holds you responsible. When you're dating, you're responsible. What you get into when you're dating, you are responsible for that. That's on you. When you're married, what happens in that marriage, that's on you. You are responsible. The well-being of your wife, that's on you. The spiritual health and vitality of your wife is on you because you are to present her blameless and without blemish to the Lord. If she's the one telling you, let's go to church, if she's the one saying, let's join Bible study, if she's the one telling you, let's go to discipleship group, let's do all this, you are failing. Because you don't get to function off your own authority. And you don't get to function for your own glory. Neither men nor women get to do it for themselves. I get that this sounds like such a, a restraint on women, but this to me sounds so, like such a weight on manhood. Because, man, you just look at the church. Why is it that hard to get our men to just get out here 
and worship, to sing praise, to go to small group, to talk about their sin. Why won't they lead and be men? You ever think maybe the women want to step up because the men are failing? I hate how this passage gets so sidelined into this argument on people's rights, on equal rights, on fairness and all this stuff, when really we're missing the point that the men are not doing their job. Who's leading prayer in your family? Men, if you are not praying, lifting holy hands... What are you doing? What husband are you? What father are you? If you're the kind of husband that just flies off the rails and you, you are understood by your wife to have an issue with your temper, or you argue for the sake of arguing because you can't be wrong and you hate being wrong, shame on you. You have disgraced your position as a spiritual overseer of your family. Do not defy the Lord on this, men. Do not disgrace yourself. Do not dishonor your wife, your kids, your church, whomever you lead. Why do we have to do this? Why do we have to make such a big deal of it? Because if we're going to keep the gospel central here in our congregation, you have to have clear expectations of where we're going. When God speaks, we listen, we follow. If God intended separate roles for men and women, we listen and follow. Our concern is not for men to say, I don't want to lead. Our concern is not for women to say, I should be allowed to lead. Our one thought, our one concern, our our one driving issue is that Jesus should lead. And Jesus has established a way in which that leadership is exhibited in the church. We listen and we follow. Men have to step up and lead. Women should be allowed to learn. Learn everything. They'll probably learn it better than most men. That can happen. But men, you got to step up. If men fail to follow God, if men fail in their leadership, the answer to that is, is not to replace them with women. The answer to that is to replace them with men who need to be qualified. Get rid of Hymenaeus and Alexander. Put in Timothy. Import him if you have to. That's what they did with Timothy. Timothy was on a missions trip, showed up in Ephesus, said, what is this? And Paul said, you stay here. You got to stay here. We need a qualified man. He didn't say, let's look for qualified women since the men are screwing it up. He said, Timothy, you stay here. Look, the gospel is going to be foolishness to the world, right? The the church is going to live in a way that seems backwards to the world. The way we speak, the way we function, is not going to look like what the unbelieving world puts together for itself. It's certainly not going to be politically correct. It's not. We're going to get opposed for what we believe. We're going to get ridiculed, attacked in some way, sometimes persecuted. People shouting at us, saying 
saying hateful things because of what we believe. Sometimes that'll even be friendly fire from believers within the church who get caught up in the false wisdom of the world, saying the world is right. Men and women should function like the unbelievers say. But that's really why we've got to pray for our nation. Pray for our leaders. Pray that they would lead in a way that makes it easier, not harder, for us to evangelize. Easier, easier not harder, for us to live the way that God wants us to live. Function the way that God wants us to function. God wants all men to be saved. Now that doesn't happen by living just like the rest of the world, by going camouflage. That's not it. It happens by living by the gospel, which is going to set us apart. And when we do it right, women will not try to usurp the role of men, and well, men will not lead for their own glory. More than ever, we've got to pray that the leaders of this country don't make it illegal or shameful to live by the gospel. Every single one of us constitute a people that has been rescued from sin by the Savior. So we don't squabble for status, we don't vie for power, we don't fight for high standing to separate good from bad Christians, separate who gets to have the most influence. We kneel in prayer to God, we stoop to serve one another, we bow to the King of Kings. If our church's leadership does its job properly, then as a church, we will be wholly consumed not in our own positions, but rather the advancement of the gospel in our land, seen in how we live and function with one another, that people would come to a knowledge of the truth and would be saved. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray. God, this is a hard message. Because the words in our, our society right now are amped up in volume around issues like this. And we don't want to get too sidelined into talking about roles of men and women that we lose sight of the gospel. We don't want that to become what we're about. And so God, our prayer is that our men would step up. God, we pray that our men would lead. Not by telling everyone what to do, but showing them how to live. We pray for our men, Lord. Because God, we need it. We make so many exceptions. We make so many allowances to just let our men get away with their laziness, their irresponsibility, their unreliability, their faithlessness. And we don't want to condemn them for it, but we want to challenge them to step up, to man up, and be what you call them to be. Because to our shame, Lord, men are masters of excuses. And we got one for everything we do. But before you, Lord, we stand exposed, revealed, 
We pray, God, that every husband at this church would lead his wife with complete sacrificial love, gentility, respect, with grace, with understanding, as co-heirs in life. We pray that the women would be able to trust the men, even though the men are going to make mistakes and screw up a lot. We pray that they'd be able to trust that the system you set up, the, the order that you have established is trustworthy and that we don't need counsel from the unbelieving world to fix the mistakes that we see happening in the church. God, we pray that our church would, would be able to operate freely in our land, that the leaders of this nation would not make it harder for us to operate the gospel and to advance it. We are thankful for the freedom of religion that we have. And we pray that other restrictions that, are, that exist would be lifted. And that our leaders that are put in place would be believers. People with a profound and undying respect for the word of God. We put all this together, Lord, and we pray all this because we want the gospel to be central. We want Jesus to be supreme. And that's not just going to happen from the things that we say at a pulpit. That's not just going to happen from the circumstances that are established around us by the government. But it's going to happen even in the way that we live. Set apart from the world. Bless every man, every woman. Bless everyone here at this church. And remind us again that your word is mysterious and yet trustworthy and true. And what you call us to, we listen to and we obey. As we do that, Lord, we pray for good leadership in our country, in our church, in our families. We pray for responsibility in our leadership that all would be taken care of, that all, all will be presented without blemish before the Lord. We pray all this in, in Christ's name. Amen.